Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. In this week's edition, we have extended versions of some of the interviews from the most recent online MK3D show. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that that's the show I used to do every month on stage at the BFI South Bank. Now, obviously, since COVID, that show has moved online. We will return to the BFI South Bank probably sometime in the new year. But for the moment, that show is online. If you'd like to watch the video version of that show, you can just go to YouTube and search the BFI channel or go to YouTube and just put MK3D into the search engine. You'll find the most recent show and indeed all the previous online shows. But on this podcast, we have extended versions of some of those interviews. So in a while, we're going to be hearing from B. Manzini, film poet and organiser of the Caramel Film Club. She was a guest on stage at MK3D some time ago. We invited her back for the online show to talk about the brilliant film Clemency and also to talk about the legacy of the great Chadwick Boseman. But before that, we're going to hear from Rose Glass and Morbeth Clark, the writer, director and star of the brilliant new film St Maud, which is coming to cinemas soon. <laughs> There's my little saint. Maud, he isn't real. <laughs> Nothing worthwhile comes easily. The good girls go You must be the loneliest girl I've ever seen. I'm ready and open. I feel fuller of your love than ever before. I have a responsibility. Oh, yes, of course. This is life and death on another level. if I'm getting it all wrong. All the good girls go to hell. It's my great pleasure to welcome uh, Morvith and uh, Rose to the show. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I, I, I wish we were doing this in person, but obviously because of, because of lockdown, everything is still online. Um, I went to see the film knowing nothing about it at all, other than that I was told, you really have to see this film, and the best thing is you know nothing about it at all. And I loved it. And I saw it at nine o'clock in the morning, which is a really strange... Oh, wow. <laughs> In that that in the in a building out by King's Cross, and I don't live in, in London. I live in Southampton. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. came out of the screening, and there was a bunch of people working for the film company. They were all just sitting around. It looked like they were waiting for me to come out. As it happens, they weren't. <laughs> and they, I came well, out, I and, I looked, and I looked at them, and they looked at me, and I looked at them, and they looked at me, and there was this silence. And I just went. I can't talk about this. And I walked off. <laughs> it was really powerful. Rose. And they went, those... fuck, he hated it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rose, tell us that the basic setup of the story and where it comes from. Sure. It's, um, so I think it's, a, I guess, a psychological horror film. And it uh, follows the journey of this young, reclusive, live-in nurse called Maud, who's played by Morbid. Uh, and she goes to care for her newest patient, Amanda, this retired dancer played by Jennifer Ely. And uh, I guess she's got quite an intense, unusual relationship with God. She's a very devout Christian, and she thinks that God's kind of sending her secret signs, and she's in direct communication with him. And she gets it into her head that she's been sent to this new patient to save her soul before she dies. Um, and she embarks on that mission and uh, things go a bit wrong. It all gets a bit kind of messed up and horrible. 
I think it all <laughs> things go a bit wrong is like saying the exorcist <laughs> yeah, so... is about a girl who has a bit of a bad day. Um, yeah, I don't know. She becomes obsessed with this other woman and sort of thinks, yeah, exactly. So, so she doesn't have the best day. Uh, Morton, tell us about your reaction to the script when you read it. Um, well, I read it, you know, my agent had gone mad about it, kind of rung me in this like big excited flurry, like you have to read this, you have to read this. So I kind of went to it like, what's got her so excited? And um, I'm kind of quite bad at sitting down and reading for more than 10 minutes at a time. And I just did this all at once and kind of then remember just lying in bed, just staring at the ceiling, kind of the same feeling that you were saying you had. And I kind of kept not having any idea what was going to come next. And then every time it did, there was this awful inevitability. So it was kind of, yeah, it was, I immediately thought it was wonderful and couldn't stop thinking about it and about Maud. I know this is something that actors always get asked, but is there anything in the character that struck, uh, you know, that struck a chord with you? Did you recognize any of the stuff that she was going through? Yeah, I think definitely. I think that I I really feel that that she's a millennial is important because I feel she's kind of got this obsession with productivity and being useful and that she's kind of here for some sort of reason. And kind of I quite like that despite clearly knowing when it's set that she has a phone that isn't um, an iPhone or something. So she's kind of removed herself from that. But I feel that her loneliness and her desire to not have wasted anything is something that I feel that everyone has some sort of link to, and I definitely did. And that she's just like often says the wrong thing. I was kind of, yeah, found it easier than it may, it should have been to understand her. One of the things that I think is really great about the film, when I was trying to describe it to somebody, there was two films that it reminded me of just tonally. One of them is a film called Requiem with Sandra Huller, which I absolutely love. And another one is a movie called Stations of the Cross. And both of those are films about people who believe that they're having a religious experience. And both of them go out of their way to to not fall either way, to allow the audience to read it either way. And I think one of the great things about St. Maud is that it keeps its ambiguity going for as long Mm. as possible. Tell me about playing that. Um, When you're playing the character, you have to believe what the character believes, that they are in direct contact with the Almighty. Yeah. Yeah, I just kind of, whatever Maud was doing or like whatever explanation Maud had for everything was just how I kind of, I didn't really, I kind of looked at it totally through Maud's eyes to start with. But I also think what was quite helpful was just like really thinking of what it would have been like to be a nurse before that for her, that there's kind of is the element of self-sacrifice and kind of saintlyhood with that. And that had come kind of, that makes sense within that context. So whenever I kind of couldn't understand her, I tried to think of that aspect of her. Kind of Rose, the, yeah. Rose, were there any were there any sort of tonal movies that you were that you were thinking of when you were putting it together? What were your inspirations? Oh, probably a bunch of stuff, I guess. I mean, the sort of I don't know the sort of films that I've always liked most tend to be sort of quite um, stylized and have quite a sort of distinct uh, sort of filmmaker's voice in them. I guess like. Uh, they're always referenced by them, I think, but Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby, the tone particularly, I guess, were quite influential. Um, and there's some Bergman movies I got. I got more of it than Jennifer sort of suggested that they watch, like, Persona and Through a Glass Darkly and The Silence and things just for, you know, great examples of kind of women sort of going, losing their minds in confined spaces. And But films where, I guess, the sort of messed up internal weird thoughts that a character's having that sort of somehow been externalized and made quite visual and literal. I mean, just talking about the ambiguity stuff, because I think a lot of, I don't know, both, both of us, I think, got a lot of questions about kind of like, oh, the ambiguity of the film and is, you know, is this a religious experience? Is this a psychotic breakdown? And I guess that, yeah, when I was writing, it was obviously kind of thinking about both of those ways you can interpret it. But like more of us said, when we were shooting, um, and most of the time, to be honest, I was kind of just thinking of it literally through Maud's eyes and she's obviously not thinking about oh this, it's all just very direct and mm. like you know films like Station of the Cross you know I love that but um and there's a couple of other like Hadowich another sort of film Bruno um Dumont one about like a young yeah. uh devout Christian but anyway some of those you don't tend to 
I like films where you actually sort of see the, see the lights that she does, if you see what I mean. So all these kind of like sort of biblical revelations and sort of visions that she's having, we're kind of privy to that as well. Um, so I wanted to just kind of make it super, super subjective and yeah, intense, I guess. I, mean, I think it's a brilliant balancing act because in order for the audience to become completely involved in the film, they have to see the world through two separate, they have to see the world through yeah. Maud's character. They also have to see what it actually looks like from the, from the outside. And the reason I asked about the tonal inspirations is I think that's the hardest thing to get right. I think most yeah. films about halfway through, they go, Oh no, it is a Dibbuk or it is a whatever it is, you know, about halfway mm. through they'll, they'll just settle down and what, but I, I love the fact that you kept that as ambiguous as it was for as long as it, I mean, right up, right up to the climax, as far as I'm concerned. I thought it was a, it was a superb balancing act. That's not a question, incidentally. That's just a kind of general <laughs> telling you how much I liked the film. What was the greatest challenge when you were doing it? What was the most difficult thing? To be honest, the writing, like I kind of feel like um, before doing this, that was the area I was kind of least confident in. Like I'd sort of done a bunch of short films and I'd written the scripts for those. But, um, you know, a 20 minute short to a feature length thing seems like a massive leap and like, went to film school but most of the emphasis is sort of in directing um so it took me a long I, I knew like the premise of the story I had quite early on sort of you know more staying with her patient talking to God thinks that she's been sent on this mission I had a few scenes and I had the ending but I think it was like a good couple of years after film school just trying to work on the treatment and then a couple of years development with the script and I just got incredibly stressed I think uh, and you start to sort of lose perspective for like whether whether you're sort of writing this thing you're like is this does this make sense or is this just nonsense or um yeah and sort of massive imposter syndrome and just very uh freaked out by you know it's an amazing exciting opportunity but it's kind of all I ever wanted to do so it's very daunting um but then I think once stuff mm. was sort of all happening then it was it was very fun but yeah writing from, from your point of view what made you trust Rose? What made you know that she would be able to to pull the film off other than just simply reading the script? Um, no, I never really thought about it like that. I just kind of, I think I still just was like, whenever I'm casting something, I kind of worry about the sanity of the director that's cast me, but also feel like just allow myself to be very confident in them. It's like two, two really opposing things. Um, but I think it became very clear that kind of the whole team was so behind Rose and so behind the story. And that kind of was really like wonderful to feel going into it, that you felt like everyone was putting their absolute best into it. And also like there were lots of people in this film who it was their first kind of job as head of department or something. So there was, we were all in the same boat, just trying to kind of get this vision to, to life really. So yeah, it was a really, on the it was same a really page. great team of people. I think we all had a really nice time making it, despite the, I think people think that like, oh, the film's a bit sort of intense and dark, so the filmmaking process must have been like that. And then we're all like, no, it was really fun actually. But yeah, as more of a yeah. said, it's like um, Ben Fordsman, our DOP, it was his first film as well, and Adam, the, our composer. Um, so yeah. Oh, no, no. Sweetheart, no, no, no. You know you shouldn't take anything I say seriously. I just want to see you loosen up. You're a beautiful young woman. And you should have some fun while you still can. I've got more important things on my mind. Oh, yes, of course. Well, how could mere human frivolity possibly compete with the Heavenly Father's warm heart pulsing? Let's go. Let's go. It, it, the, the, the score is absolutely fantastic. Tell me about how, yeah. how those discussions went, because I think the score is really great. It's great, isn't it? I mean, so yeah, Adam Janotobuzovsky, our composer, like I said, his first film as well. And um, he actually came on board in post-production, like we already had a kind of, I don't know, about halfway through the edit or something. Um, and I'd just written a really basic little brief and he didn't, he hadn't been sent the script or the cut or anything. He'd just been sent like my, some mood boards and a sort of thing about what it's about. And he sent, sent us a few demo tracks and a few of those tracks are pretty much like exactly what you find in the film. So. Um, obviously, he did a, lo a lot of a lot of work and stuff after that, but it seemed to, to be honest, it clicked quite. He sort of turned up and had this had this thing which worked for the film already. So yeah, it was really it was pretty smooth to be honest. But I guess um, yeah, obviously wanted the soundtrack to sort of have this kind of sense of just I don't know uh, doom and some of the cinematography sort of quite polished, and so I just wanted the the sound design and sort of the music to be somewhere where it could be a bit kind of I don't know heavier and rougher and weirder. 
It sounds to me like you didn't do the thing that so many composers hate of, of sending temp tracks, of saying, this is, this is a piece of music I'm listening to, I want you to do something like this. It sounds to me like you just, yeah. you, you just described the mood. Yes, yeah. So that, and that seemed, to, that seemed to work well for both of us. And yeah, we very definitely tried. Not, I mean, you obviously end up, you have to put some stuff in, but I think by the time we sent it to him, it had maybe like, I think we got trapped with like one bit of temp music and inevitably that ends up being the scene that you just can't get the cue right for because we can't be too attached to it. But I think that happened in like one, one scene. And it comes just after a joke as well, which sort of made me realise like how delicate the balance is of like timing, like a sort of punchline and then the music cue coming in. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's brilliant. Uh, Morvis, the, 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 the entire story is centred on your character. I mean, you're in, you know, you're right mm-hmm. at the centre of the film all the way through. And I was conscious watching it that it's not just... Um, that you know, it's a psychodrama. It is also a very physical performance. Tell us about the physicality mm. of playing that that role. Um, well, Rose kind of tested me on this in the audition. So my final audition was the scene um, in the flat where she is kind of at her lowest and most physically kind of contorted and tortured. And I'm actually so glad that we did that in the audition because it meant that by the, when we got to filming it, I already knew that she was capable of getting to that point of like distress and like physical agony. Um, I, I feel that it almost is those, those days when you're kind of really focusing on a physical thing tend to kind of go faster and be easier in a way. And um, what you when you're shooting? Yeah, yeah, I'd say. And yeah. I, I really love those aspects, like the parts of it that are kind of like particularly with the hand and the scab and stuff. Those are bits that I kind of, oh, I'm not explaining like myself very well here. Yeah. Um, yeah, it kind of is just more like choreography, but also I kind of, it, it felt like a relief to kind of, because she's so contained sometimes filming those scenes that were very out there kind of helped in terms of understanding her because there was a sort of relief to getting out of the stillness of it. There are, there are moments during that sequence when it just looks physical. I mean, it looks really physically painful. You say that it was done in the audition that you went through. I mean, it was fine. I, pres- <laughs> I presume that, <laughs> no, sure. But I presume there is a point because you don't shoot something once, you shoot something several times that must have been an exhausting, however long it was that you shot the scene that you're talking about for, that must have been an exhausting process. Yeah, I guess so. I guess it was. I'm kind of always quite excited when I exhaust myself because I know I'm going to actually be able to get to sleep. So it was kind of one of those days where you're like, we worked. Um, But (laughs) also everyone, so there's bits where I'm being taken off the floor and that was Oliver and Oliver, our producer, and Lee, our grip had wrapped a scarf around me and were lifting me themselves off the floor. So everyone was kind of mucking in. Oh, for the close-ups of the hand coming, yeah. Yeah. I was being lifted by scarves from various members of the crew. So I think that whole day for everyone um, went kind of quickly because it was quite manic and frantic and big mucking. And tell me about your relationship with uh, Jennifer Ely, because obviously those two characters are, you know, they're, they're polar opposites when, when we first meet. So tell me about working mm. with her. Um, well, I, w- I think about a lot with like, I'm sure there's loads of wonderful actresses, but I think I was so lucky to be with Jennifer because she was so nurturing and kind to me and it definitely wasn't her first big job and I was kind of like (laughs) it was quite useful in terms of Maud because I was in awe of her I'd grown up kind of whenever I was off school being allowed to watch David Attenborough or um, Pride and Prejudice because my mum liked it and so I was she was so familiar to me and so wow but also we shot because almost all of it's in the one house we were very lucky to be able to shoot chronologically so as I got to know Jennifer more Maud and Amanda's relationship was kind of becoming more intense. So that definitely helped to kind of not jump into the end in terms of this. It was really useful. At the point, at the point that you shot the film, because obviously we see films out of order, people you know make films in strange order. I saw um, St. Maud quite shortly after seeing David Copperfield. And oh, yeah. it's, you know, I mean, you, you couldn't think of two more completely different roles, but w- what were you actually doing before and after this? Um, so over the summer, I did David Copperfield and um, this film called Eternal Beauty by... Craig Roberts and um, 
they were both very useful in terms of coming to St. Maud because um, eternal beauty is about a woman who kind of has schizophrenia and she's, there's things within her family that have issues, but she's loved. And then Mr. Dick, who kind of has mental health issues, is looked after by Betsy Trotwood. And it really, I'd already been cast as Maud. So I was just constantly thinking about this the whole time that Maud just had nobody filling any of those spaces. Right. Um, so that, um, that, was really useful. And then afterwards I went on to do Dracula and did loads of screaming, which I think was quite good for me after Maud as well. Yeah. <laughs> what was that? What was the experience of doing Dracula like? Um, very funny. And like lots of it, I'm sitting there while Dolly and John Heffernan have lots of lines and I'm meant to be invisible there. So it was, it was quite chilled, like a little masterclass for me. <laughs> So Rose, yeah, that what... and his dark materials, you ended up having like a trio sort of religious nurse. Oh nun yeah, kind of <laughs> characters. Yeah, because I also thought Holy that Maud would end up in Bolvanger. She'd have been sent there and had her demon <laughs> severed. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So, so Rose, what was it that you saw in Morphe that made you think, okay, that's that's the person I want for that role? At what point did she? Did you first start thinking of her for the for the character? Um. I mean, pretty much as soon as we saw our first tape, like we did a sort of fairly, I guess, traditional route through the casting for Maud. Like we worked with the casting director and saw quite a lot of people and Maud Ruth was pretty much the last person you sent in a tape. And I think me and my producers were sort of like, brilliant, great, got it. Um, and then we actually had to, I mean, well, because the character's in pretty much every shot in the film and definitely yeah. every scene and it's all inside our head. So basically, unless we we knew we needed to find someone uh, who's just sort of fascinating and you can't take your eyes off because if you don't, and I don't know, if you don't buy into her, then the whole film just sort of falls apart. Um, and I don't know, she's a, she's a chameleon. She has to go and look different places. And I, to be honest, more of it, I think one of the main things I've sort of loved about her the fact that she's really funny. And um, it's not like a comedy comedy film, obviously, but it has quite a lot of uh, playful, dark humour in it. And the scenes that we've been getting people to read. I think Warworth was one of the only ones who like just really made me laugh at points, which I thought was really important. Um, but yeah, the, the finances I think at first were a little bit kind of, oh, maybe like she's a really good actress, but can she like do all the really sort of dark messed up scenes? And so that's when we actually got Warworth to come in to do the scene she was talking about where she's sort of at her lowest point and kind of like asks for a sign from God and kind of has a seizure and vomits everywhere and levitates. So that was a weird one probably to do in a sterile casting room with no special effects. But, um, but we did that and then send it to them and they were like, oh, great. Okay. Yes. No, she's brilliant. Yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I, I honestly, so. I thought, I thought the performance was, uh, was astonishing. Do you, were you both together when the film was first shown in front of an audience? Because obviously it's, uh, where was the, where was the first time that an audience saw it? Uh, official premiere was Midnight Madness at Toronto yeah. Film Festival. And we were, we were both there. And, yeah. and yeah. what was it like? Because I always imagine that the first time you show your film, no matter how much confidence you have in it, the first time you show your film to an audience, it must be a terrifying experience. So tell me what it yeah. was like seeing it play. Just really surreal, to be honest. I was honestly, and I think the great thing, it was, it's, a, you know, it's a great festival, obviously, but I think particularly Midnight Madness is quite fun yeah. because everybody's, most people I think in the audience have like, had a few drinks already, so they're that bit more vocal. <laughs> yeah. And just the, the relief when you hear people kind of like wincing in the right place or laughing in the right place or like if a jump yeah. scare works, it's just, it is, and you get a really vocal reaction. It's really pretty sort of exciting. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, that was incredible. But I really bought, like my parents were there as well. And like all the, not all the crew, but like some of us. And yeah, I was, I was, I think after the screening, I was just sort of uh, yeah. really kind of spaced out for, for several hours. It was really sweet, <laughs> but really fun. And I had my There's sister like a queue ruining of people it. outside. Yeah. She's ruining it. We had Shuan covering her eyes before every jump scare that she knew was coming, <laughs> my sister. And I was like, you can't do that. Everyone's going to see that something scary is about to happen. So it was my my grandma went to go watch it apparently in london and um my mum sat with her and and made a deal that she'd kind of like tap her when there was like an especially sort of horrible bit coming so that she wouldn't see it um yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, was it family was friendly it, was it was it was it a great experience seeing it or was it a scary experience seeing it? i can't imagine what watching yourself playing that role must be like i have no idea what that must be like yeah well i think 
obviously knew Rose was very clever when I read the script, but when you when I saw the film, I was like, oh, oh right, all of this was happening. Um, I think by this point, I, I just the film makes me very sad when I when I think of Maud. I think like throughout filming of it, that was the the bit that kind of got me was just sometimes thinking about Maud and kind of her reality and stuff. And mm-hmm. I um I guess I've ne- I've never been in anything where I'm on screen for that long and so I guess it was one of the first times where I'd got used to that I was doing it and then so by the end I was kind of like oh no poor Maud that's happened but um it was wonderful seeing kind of fully grown men being scared by me in the cinema which is something that I didn't imagine would ever happen the idea that I could be scary was a shock yeah yeah no do you both (laughs) this is to both of you do you read reviews and do you do you care what reviewers say uh yeah i probably read sort of quite a few of them but generally the once and then sort of try and not think about yeah. it but we've been lucky we seem to be getting some quite nice ones so i do read reviews he goes okay yeah because i feel that if there before if i'd had to to read a review i'd had to go to shop and buy a paper I don't think I would have but I'm yeah. in fear of at 3 a.m one night suddenly doing it without being prepared so I like just rip the bandage off and like get it done and then okay, also have a click away you're just like what do they think yeah. oh great I mean you want to I don't know you, you know you make it for an audience you make it for people to watch it so it's you know you want to you want to hear what they, what they think mm. to it so that's yeah <laughs> And, and, I mean, do reviews ever hurt? I mean, I, I say this, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a critic. I'm sure I've said rude things about films, but um, I've, also, I've also written books and I've had stuff reviewed. And I've, I can't remember a single nice word that's ever been said about anything I've done, but I can remember and recite every single word of criticism, starting yeah. from the fact that back in 1998, when I, when I made my very first documentary with, uh, with Nick, and it was a documentary about The Exorcist, mm. and the review in, in a major newspaper said, the scariest thing about this documentary is that creepy guy presenting it. Who is he? <laughs> And I, I just, oh, I remember so it, I ca- I've carried that with me all the time. So, m- m- I mean, how, have you, how did, do you, do you deal with criticism? Is it okay? Or, I mean, generally, I imagine the reviews um, for most of the stuff you've done have been great. Yeah, I've, I've been quite lucky that I've managed to skip kind of, I've also been under the radar for like, like a long time I've not kind of been the center of anything so that was what was scary about St Maud because I was like it's definitely going to be about me this review yeah um <laughs> yeah I I actually find I kind of enjoy being mocked in a good-hearted way so in terms of like lots of the stuff that's been said on Twitter about St Maud is hilarious and I'm kind of enjoying that aspect of it um what and kind I've of also stuff? Kind of, oh, I can't think right now, but I've had a wig at times. I've, ha- I've been in something that I've had a really bad wig and that was mocked mercilessly on Twitter. And <laughs> I, I found that quite enjoyable, but maybe it's because it was, <laughs> I've been very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say like, well, I think, I mean, I hope it has a wider appeal than maybe the premise sounds, but and it's quite fun, I think, even though we're making it sound pretty well it's pretty bleak as well but um yeah I mean I I think probably if you do any film which is about Christianity mental illness all these other things in there you're probably gonna have some people who are just like I just don't like it I don't like it Um, so there's some quite funny comments but yeah it's interesting it's been very interesting people in the health service kind of what they've thought about it which kind of and reading those things is just like very interesting kind of yeah I'm very, very looking forward to when it eventually comes out to what kind of the discussions around kind of that aspect of it from kind of people who work in the health service feel about it. Like, and what is, the release, what is the release strategy now? Because obviously everything's been, uh, you know, so chaotic since the whole COVID thing. Rose, do you know uh, what's the, it, well, it, I imagine we're opening theatrically. Do you have dates and things? Yes. Yes, so we're, we're re- all, all I know is that we're releasing in the UK on October the 23rd, so we'll be in cinemas around the country then, um, and I think some other countries in Europe at least. America, we were originally going to be releasing 
we, we were literally sort of four days away from getting on a plane and going to LA and doing this whole like sort of press thing and the film was going to be released like in April and then that all got put on hold and then we were going to get released in July and now we're on hold again in America. So TBC America, mm-hmm. 23rd of October, England. And how have you both managed through lockdown? How have you both, uh, you know, uh, kept things? Have you, have you carried on working? Uh, what's been happening? Um, um, you go, you've got an interesting... <laughs> I don't think so, but I think um, <laughs> one thing that I definitely have in common with Maud is that I think I can be quite insular and enjoy time on my own. So there was kind of, I feel that I have some very extroverted friends who I didn't have to deal with that particular frustration that they did. <laughs> um um, and I've been in New Zealand, so it's kind of been very different. I feel that I'm on another planet to everyone, really. It's very strange being far away, but um, I think you only get to really know your country when you move away, people say. And so I've had that tenfold being away for the first time in this experience. Yeah. yeah. And Rose, wh- where are you, Rose? Where, where are we talking to you from? I'm in Tottenham in North London. So I've okay. been, and I sort of live here with, some flatmates and some cats in a garden. So we've, so it's been, it's been fine to be honest. Cause I was, apart from film release, I've just been getting on with writing. So yeah, embracing your inner hermit is quite useful for, for that. What are, you, what are you writing? I've been working on two scripts. So um, co-writing one of them with a filmmaker. I went to NFTS with Veronica Tafilska and writing the other one by myself. I can't say much about them yet. <laughs> and, and, and do you, are you both of the opinion that, that film production will return to something approaching normal in the foreseeable future? Who knows? I hope so. I know that, you know, there's productions kind of tentatively starting to do stuff again here in the UK, I think, a couple, a few. So mm-hmm. hopefully that'll increase. Probably not this year, I guess. It'll probably keep being weird. I'm hoping very much. I'd love to shoot something next year. I don't know. But Maud was often like, it was a very small cruise in terms of, I think with certain restrictions, Maud could have been, St. Maud could have been done. Yeah, it's weird. There'll probably be more and more productions. I've got a friend who's maybe prepping something that'll be shot sort of somewhere remote in the UK. And so it's kind of like, you'll have to get the entire cast and crew to sort of all live and work together in one yeah. place and just sort of cut yourself off from everyone. So maybe, maybe that'll be the new norm. But to be honest, when you make a film, you always like get into this weird, like completely private little bubble universe anyway. So I don't know, maybe yeah. I'll just yeah. increase I- that. I was talking to a theatre director who said that um, that the whole the bubble production thing, which probably will be the future for a while, he said actually mm. it's going to be very helpful because it is like doing a theatre production. You all you you all lock down yeah. in this kind of you know. I know that I was yeah. talking to Simon Pegg about Mission Impossible. He said, "Oh, it's okay. Tom Cruise has built a village, so that's oh, fine. great, fine. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> Mission Impossible would be fine. Bring uh, more like this, the yeah. smaller ones, which would be locked up in a barn somewhere. Yeah. But yeah, yeah." But on well, that, I think like the restraints of having to use one location, which might come in, will kind of create a very different type of film, which kind of, I think, will be more like a play as well in terms of, yeah. Contained. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, thanks so much for, for joining us, albeit remotely. As I said, I'm a huge fan thanks of the film. I think, it's, I think it's great. I think it will be a, you so know, a big success so when, it, you know, when it comes out. I think it's really important to see it on a big screen. I think it needs to be seen projected because I think so much of it is to do with, um, you know, the atmosphere of it and the sound. Again, when you're in a cinema, the sound is very different to watching it at home. Yeah. So anyway, congratulations. And hopefully when this is all uh, behind us, uh, we can welcome you uh, live to the BFI South Bank. You can come and do one of the live shows. So Yeah, I hope so. That'd be great. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My thanks to Rose Glass and Morbid Clock. As I said, St. Maud will be in cinemas soon and it is well worth checking out. It's one of the real highlights of the year. Time now for our second guest on this Kermit on Film podcast and it's a joy to welcome back the great B. Manzini. So we're delighted to be joined uh, in this virtual MK3D by B. Manzini, who of course was a guest uh, on our, in our live uh, shows at the BFI South Bank. B, welcome back. It's, it's a shame not to be in the same room but uh, lovely to have you here virtually. How have you been doing? How have you managed through everything that's been going on? It's lovely to see you, Mark. Yeah, it's been a really tricky time, hasn't it? I mean, the world as we once knew it has just totally, totally changed. Um, so, yeah, adjusting is probably the word I would use. Have you found it uh, you know, a workable experience? Have you found it difficult? Have you managed to get on with creative stuff? More the writing, actually. I've had a lot of fodder, obviously, for creative writing and time alone, um, which is kind of like a writer's delight. So in, in that sense, yeah, definitely. But in terms of what I do as the director of Caramel Film Club and doing screenings and what have you and working with films and cinemas, it's been, it's been quite limited as a result. But, you know, things are starting to pick back up again. Now, at the time that we're talking... Lockdown has kind of nominally ended, but there still seems to be a lot of kind of toing and froing about how open uh, venues are. Um, have you been out and about in the world? Are you doing live shows? How's it? What's happening in your world right now? Yeah, so um, did a screening at the Rio Cinema a couple of weeks ago um, with Bird's Eye View, and we were screening Clemency um, and did a Q and A, and I shared some of my work. Um, and it's it's very different. I mean, it was really interesting because it was it felt like a real privilege to be back in that space, a space that we often take for granted. But to to be in there again was was really really lovely. Um, social distancing, still getting used to that. Mask wearing in the space, people queuing up, sanitizing, all of the yeah, all of the things that are put in place to make sure that that everyone hopefully leaves healthy. Was that the first time you'd been in a cinema since lockdown began or had you been in one before that? Had been to Genesis, actually, which is kind of my local in East okay. London. So, yeah. I, when, I, when I went back for the first time, I went to, to my local cinema in Southampton to see Unhinged, you know, the, the Russell Crowe movie in which Russell Crowe runs somebody over with a car for most of the movie. And, um, and the, you know, the, the movie, it, it's nothing to write home about but just the thrill of being back in a cinema was so exciting. And I was pretty much on my own. I was sitting there with a mask on and I, I just felt, this is a phrase that Jack Howard uh, said, I felt like I was home. It mm. really felt quite magical. Did you have the same thing? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, for me, cinema is such a communal experience. That's why, you know, I, I run Caramel Film Club because people coming together and watching film, there's nothing, there's nothing like it. I mean, it took me a very, very long while to um, move over to like the online space um, and start to watch stuff, you know, on, you know, all of those platforms that people usually watch things on. But um, I think it's a different, it's a different world now. So definitely do more of that. And I think there's room for both of them. Now, obviously, MK3D will go back to the BFI South Bank when it's possible to do so. And we'd love to have you back on for, for the live show. But you say that you've been writing and you mentioned that, um, that you did the screening of Clemency. Uh, one of the things that we asked you to do is whether you'd be uh, willing to, you know, to, to write a couple of things uh, for this show. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that you have. And I know that the first thing that you've written that you're going to read for us in a while is about Clemency, the film, which I loved. I was completely knocked out by it. And uh, I, I wrote a review of it in the Observer. It was five stars. I loved everything about it. I loved the soundtrack. I loved the performances. Tell me about why that film was important to you. Oh, it's such an important film. I mean, Chinyo Chuka, who was the writer-director, she um, was inspired by the real-life story of Troy Davis, who was um, on death row for 22 years for her crime that was really clear that he did not commit. And she was so impassioned by it that, that she basically wrote this film as a result. And, and what we see is we see Alfred Woodard, who is Bernadine, and she's the prison warden. And Aldous Hodge plays Woods. 
and um, he is seeking clemency. And it's just a stellar film in terms of performances, but also the subject matter. I mean, especially in this time that we're living in, where race is so much at the forefront and people are talking about Black Lives Matter. Um, it's a really timely and important film looking at what I call the injustice system. I don't know if this is gonna make things better, but I'm trying. I can't understand. I can't know what it's like. I am alone. I am going to fight for him right up until the very moment you stick that needle in his arm. You've given me hope. I can't do this on my own anymore. I want to be home. One of the things that really surprised me was that I had heard reports of the film after it first played at film festivals last year. And then it was talked of as an awards contender. Everyone was saying that Alfred Woodard's performance was extraordinary. It's a you know, great, uh, great work of direction. The score I thought was wonderful. And then when awards season came around, it seemed to have kind of got forgotten about. So when it came out, I was, firstly, I was astonished by just how good it is. But secondly, I was kind of furious that it hadn't been more prevalent in awards, you know, didn't get Oscar nominations, which it should have done. Why do you think it didn't pick up the kind of uh, uh, plaudits that it should have done? I think it's still quite unusual. So, I mean, Alfred Woodard it is, is a wonderful actress, but I still think it's quite unusual to have a black female lead. Um, and she holds the film beautifully. As you said, it's an Oscar, you know, award-winning performance. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I think, you know, her and Wendell Pierce, even that is unusual to have black love displayed in that complicated way. I mean, her life is unraveling in front of our eyes. And so I think that it, it's sometimes still a hard sell. So she's a prison warden. She uh, she's the warden of a prison which has uh, a death row on it. She is clearly somebody who is at a crossroads in her career, in which she does what she has to do, which is, you know, dealing with uh, with uh, inmates who some of whom are going to face the death penalty. And her argument is, well, I treat them with respect, and I go with them on the whole journey, and that's how she kind of um, uh, justifies it to herself. But during the course of the drama, we see her becoming traumatized by the job and I read an interview with Alfre Woodard in which she said that in the research uh, they had uh, gone back to interviews with people who do work on on death row who said the thing that constantly gets overlooked is the violence that this does to the people working in this environment it's not just about the death penalty it's about everything that surrounds it did that resonate for you Definitely. I mean, I think it, it's a system that does traumatise people. I think what's interesting having um, Bernadine as the lead and going through her journey is that you see it from a slightly different perspective, but they both need clemency. That's the really interesting thing about the story. And I, I, you mentioned Wendell Pierce, who's great as, as her husband, who wants her to retire and he wants to kind of, he wants their lives to change. I, during lockdown, I, I watched the whole of The Wire and I'd seen Wendell Pierce uh, on stage uh, recently in, in the West End. And it's amazing because it's, it's, a, it's a fairly small role, actually. It's not a, a huge role, but he, he is so brilliant in it. You just go, wow, even the small roles have got the best possible players in them. Yeah. I mean, the casting is really, really, really phenomenal. And I think that, you know, the camaraderie in telling this story, and I think it's not only in terms of the acting in itself, but the activism that's behind it too. And I think that when artists do that and they're passionate, and I know that Chinonye had to spend a lot of time trying to get financing for this film and what have you, and thought really, really carefully about the group of people that were going to realise this, this, this film and this ambition. And it really shows um, that they were 100% behind it and how confident she was in the story, her directing and the cast. Now, when you come to write a poem in response to a film, I have no idea how you'd even begin because I'm a critic. So I'd sit down and go, okay, well, here's who's in it and here's the basics of the plot and here's whether I think it works or not. 
how how do you go about approaching it poetically? It's a good question. So with this particular film, I mean, it's different with each and every one, but with this particular film, it was the scene where Wood says, I choose when I die. And it's absolutely, de- it's devastating. It's so harrowing. And it was just indelible for me. I mean, there were other brilliant moments as well. But that really, really, really stuck with me. And I can just remember like breathing, not breathing for a few minutes. Um, so I started at that point and that scene. But also I found out that Aldous Hodge is a horologist. So um, he looks at he looks at the study of time. And I thought that that was fascinating that this actor comes to this work with that. And then that just opened up all of this creativity in me in the sense of me looking at time in a number of ways. So from, you know, ancient Egypt and Kemet to, um, you know, all of the, the movements in terms of Black Lives Matters and putting in intertextual pieces that you'll, you'll, you'll hear when I read it. So it's kind of like a salute to um, a lot of activists as well. Okay. Now, bear in mind that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a, a fairly, it's far, as far as poetry is concerned, I don't know very much. I, I like poetry. I don't know much about poetry. Is there anything I need to know in advance to understand the poem that I'm going to ask you to read? Do you need to set the scene at all? Or just you tell me, you tell me how I need to be prepared. Um, I think the only thing I probably need to point out is that the story of um, Osiris and Isis. I don't know if people know that. So um, assume, of, assume that I don't and, okay. and tell me, and I, this is my favourite phrase, speak to me as if you are speaking to a small child or a Labrador puppy. Okay, I will try that, Mark. So the story of Osiris and Isis, they were husband and wife. This is part of the pantheon of ancient Egyptian gods and goddesses. And um, Osiris, unfortunately, was murdered and his the pieces of his body were scattered all over Kemet. And Isis basically spent years trying to find them, pulled them back together, and magically he was reformed, but only for one night. And in that night, in that night of passion and joy, um, Horus was conceived. And Horus is um, the god of the third eye of seeing forward and backwards in time. So hence horology. So I put things like that in there. But the, the rest of the references, I think, will be fairly transparent. OK, that was great. Thank you for that primer. B, uh, give us your poem. I'd, I'd love to hear it. OK. I decide when I die. I hear you be a winged black god, a sacred spirit, a trinity. You be your own child. You be your own beloved, a horologist that stops time. Crack open a face like a wristwatch, a clock, neck lace, a human head, that old American chestnut founding fathers fought to the death. Is that why you blood the wall, scream for the suspended caged birds that too aren't free, whose voices were handcuffed, whose throats were kneed? The feeders in prison pipelines chew on ripened flesh, never created to be eaten, strange fruit indeed. Wood erased from family trees, seeds then planted in a corrosive system. Don't be beaten into their version of what a black bird daring to fly towards freedom is. Don't be weighed down. You rise, you rise, you rise. Be Trinity, be constellation, Osiris, Isis, manifested hawk-headed Horus in just one night. A future visioned, it's time, it's been time for the multitude of sisters and brothers doomed to know the nightmare of being strapped on a gurney in that white room where righteousness is not heard. I have a dream is entombed and haunted by the words running through the walls. Your life matters. Our lives matter. Black. God's beloved child, 
even then we rarely decide or get to choose when we die. I feel like if we were in the if we were in the the live auditorium, that's the point at which there'd be a, a huge pause followed by a huge round of applause. I'm I'm sorry that it's just me, but that's that was wonderful. That was, and I, you know, and the philistine that I am, I think I understood a lot of it, which was which was really, really great. Do you do you write the poems to be read? You know, read or to be read out because so much of what was happening there was to do with hearing you read it, B. That's an interesting point. I mean, I write for the page predominantly, but I guess when I'm going through the editing process, I definitely am looking for sound and rhythm and the music within within the work. And you were refining right up until the last moment because just before we came on, you were. Just, I saw you with. You know, you were. It's like a kind of composition, isn't it? That note's not quite right, or that you were you were fiddling till the last moment. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's that thing of, you know, you put something away in a drawer, piece of writing in a drawer, and it either rots or ripens. And I think that, yeah, the more the more time you have to leave it, then you can really see where you need to do the changes and, and, and move things around. But, I, yeah, I really enjoy the editing process. It's an important part of the creation for me. I have to say that I'm, I, I'm very conscious, that, you know, as a film critic, that it's – it's often very difficult to describe films in words. I mean, the best films you actually can't describe in words. And uh, maybe poetry is actually closer to doing, I read an essay once that said, you know, the only way you can write a review of a painting is to do another painting. And mm. somebody else said, no, actually there are other ways you could write a review with a piece of music, but the worst way of writing a review is to literally sit down. And And the older I get and the more I, I think, you know, that film criticism is a kind of, it's like banging your head on a wall. The more I think, well, maybe that's, Maybe this is the way, maybe we should have more film critic poets. I mean, if somebody said to you, there we go, you could, you could take over as, as chief film critic for The Observer, you write a poem about a film every week, would you do it? I would absolutely do it. Now, I love responding to films. And, you know, over the last couple of years, it's been like a wonderful, wonderful niche to have. I mean, lots of people are like, you write your film poet? And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's my favourite space to be in. So I would absolutely do it. We, we should collaborate, Mark. Hey, you, uh, listen, you know, I, I'm an old fart. I'd be de delighted to, to collaborate. It would be great. I mean, it's, you know, I don't know that you want to be weighed down by the baggage of a 58-year-old, you know, guy who looks like the grandfather from Up. But yeah, you know, it would be great. But I do, I do in genuinely, seriously, I think that there is a future in film criticism which isn't necessarily to do with doing what I do. I actually mm. think that perhaps poetry or... You know, this, the, the, some of the best films, I've just seen a documentary about uh, Max Richter's uh, Sleep, you know, which is a piece of music that plays out over eight hours and you listen to it while you sleep. And I don't know what to say about the film other than, yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> you'd probably do better than I would. Now, also since the last time we spoke, and this was really shocking, I woke up one morning, I had a message from Simon Mayo who said, have you seen the news about Chadwick Boseman? And Simon Mayo was particularly affected by this because he'd interviewed Chadwick Boseman um, a couple of times, I think, and found him to be, you know, smart and intelligent and charming and, a, you know, and he's an incredible sweet. And nobody had any idea that he wasn't, mm. that he wasn't well. And uh, I think uh, Chadwick Boseman's death has been more shocking than... Uh, anything I can remember recently, just because it was so out of the blue. And there's been an incredible outpouring, not just a brief bit of admiration and love and respect for his extraordinary body of work. How did you find out about Chadwick Boseman dying? I was up in the early hours. So I literally saw it once the, the press release went out and I was totally taken aback. I mean, I think that the most surprising thing is that he was working while he was having treatment for colon cancer and producing magnificent work. I mean, the athleticism and the energy that it, it takes normally to produce that kind of thing, let alone when you're having chemo and surgery, it's, it's phenomenal. It's extraordinary when you look back at the, um, I mean, it's it, the body of work that he did. Uh, and so I remember remarking when, when Get On Up came out that I thought you'd never be able to make that film because you'd never be able to get somebody to fill the central role. And then he's so brilliant in it. And, you know, 42 and 21 Bridges and Black, all these different roles. In fact, I think it's quite possible for people to have seen Chadwick Boseman in a couple of films and not realised it was the same guy because yeah. he had that, you know, he was an actor. He was 
he was different for every performance, wasn't he? Yeah, he absolutely was. And it's interesting that you say that because when he depicted James Brown, I absolutely didn't make the link until much later because no. he just did it with, yeah, just such smoothness. Um, I, I'm really interested about the characters that he picks. I mean, you've mentioned some of them. So, you know, James Brown, Jackie Robinson, um, Thurgood Marshall, and he picks these really iconic or pick these really iconic parts to play because I really think that he wanted to create work that was inspirational and about hope to the black community and, and give voice to there's, there's something beyond the slave narrative. There's something beyond, you know, the thug narrative. And I think it recently just came out that him and Tessa Thompson were offered um, a slave movie and he said, no, he's not going to do it. It's fascinating looking at, um, we did a, a end of the year roundup not so long ago. And uh, there was a picture, I think it was the front cover of Vanity Fair, which had Chadwick Boseman on it. You know, this, I mean, looking absolutely, you know, godlike. It was looking at an extraordinary uh, picture. And I remember uh, seeing that, that front cover and just going, well, okay, so he, he is, he's the hundred percent star package because on the one hand he can look like that. He can look like the kind of, and yet, on the other hand, every role that he plays, he inhabits that role. I think it is fascinating. So you didn't realise it was him immediately in uh, in Get On Up, and that's the thing. He wasn't just somebody who was the who was the star in every film that he did, despite the fact that, quite frankly, he had one of the most memorable, you know, presences of anyone in recent cinema. That is a remarkable trick, isn't it? It absolutely is. I mean, to be able to embody so many different characters and in a way that's absolutely authentic and believable and that you are totally immersed in the work. You know, I, I don't come out of his films. I'm totally in them. And that's a, that's a wonderful cinematic experience. Very thankful. Now, you know, as same as every other film critic, I, you know, I paid what tribute I could by saying, look, here are all these films. They're all great you know, the films live on, go back and see them again. This is one of the wonderful things about cinema is that the work does live on. I mean, it genuinely does. Um, however, you know, once again, we come to this point about, is there a better way of responding? And I know that you have a, a somewhat more poetic uh, response or more poetic tribute. So tell me how you would start thinking about uh, paying tribute to somebody like Chadwick Boseman through the poetic form. Yeah, it was interesting because I actually started four different pieces of writing. <laughs> and what I'm going to share with you later is the one that I settled on today. But I think that because his work was so important and because he's a man of such gravitas, it isn't actually a one poem deal. I definitely needed to do more than that. And I had a couple ideas that I'm kind of rejigging. Um, but yeah, no, it's been a real, a real joy to, to write this short piece. You say joy. I think one of the interesting things about what's happened since he died is that there has been an outpouring of, of I mean, grief and shock, obviously, mm. but actually it's, there's been a lot of very positive response, hasn't there? People have remembered the roles that he played, the strong roles that he played, the strong role model that he was, and have just, it's, it's actually been a, a very, very positive response. Yeah, I think I think because of, you know, who he was, not only in terms of in front of the camera, but behind the camera. I mean, while he was having his treatment, he was also working with like Make-A-Wish Foundation and going to see seriously ill children and things like that. And when you hear Ryan Coogler or any of his cast members from any of the films talk about who he was, and the integrity that he brought to the space, but the professionalism and how he made them better actors because he always brought his A-game. There's just so many different aspects to how he lived his life that yeah, I'm really honoured to write, um, write this. And I guess the joy comes from a life well lived. He was only 43 years old. And, yeah. you know, despite that, he packed so much, you know, into it. And I think that that's inspirational on so many different levels. We have another film yet to come. We have Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which obviously um, uh, will, will come out, I suppose, in the in the near future. And forward word on it is is very very positive. There was going to be a kind of a preview thing they were doing on Netflix that got cancelled uh, just uh, just a week or so ago. Um, I think it's it. it it, it's there's something kind of weirdly hopeful about the fact that there is still another film of his 
yet to be discovered for most of us. I mean, that's the weird thing about cinema, isn't it? It's kind of like a time machine. I mean, he's gone and yet there is still something new by him yet to come out that sounds like it's going to be great. Yeah, and it's going to be wonderful to see him beside Viola Davis as well. And, you know, interesting going back to kind of picking characters and what have you, you know, Viola Davis talked about, um, you know, being in the help and how now she looks back, she wish she necessarily shouldn't have taken that part. And I think that one of the things that um, Chadwick can, can leave is that he took all of the parts that he wanted to take and didn't compromise. And I think that that's a really wonderful thing. It's a hard industry. I think lots of actors feel like they have to compromise or they have to take on things that won't be asked back for work and all of that kind of stuff. So salute to him. So B, I'm going to ask you to read us your, what do we get? Is it a poem? Is it a tribute? What do we call it? Um, it's a, I guess it's a poetic tribute, but it's more prosaic this time. So okay. yeah, as you all hear. It um, begins like a letter. Dear Chadwick, Bozeman, we never knew how much we needed you. You were more than an actor, a storyteller, a portrait of what greatness can look like. In the frame, you danced like Brown, home ran like Robinson, and had the integrity of Marshall. You depicted icons, no dress rehearsal needed because you were already a king in waiting for the moment to reveal your sovereignty. Heavy is the head that wears the crown, but you made it seem light, moving swiftly to make every day a movie. Thank you for sharing moments with us. I pray as you reach your final resting place, you were trumpeted in. I know we will watch you slide in shiny shoes, past posts to win a game or stand in righteous defence. You won so many battles, teaching the next generation of actors, storytellers, activists, leaders, vanguards and us mere mortals how to be superheroes. Although your body didn't heal, you healed millions of minds that needed reminding that black is brave, resilient and dynamic. And the children will wear this skin colour in your honour with a little more shine, a brighter twinkle in their eyes, a little more purpose in the way they move. Forever we will call your name. Thank you. That was, that was, that was lovely. That was really powerful. And, uh, but again, you know, positive, as, as we were just saying beforehand, the message of that is absolutely positive. It's about, you know, the stuff that was left behind being a, being a legacy that will live on, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the world is definitely a better place with Chadwick Boseman having been in it. And, you know, um, the Wakanda forever salute that is so famous now, um, you know, because of his central performance, he just held that film amazingly. And I think when I look at, you know, social media and Instagram and I, I look at the variety of tributes that people are paying to him, it's also creating more and more art, not just in terms of poetry, but there's, there's videos and photographs and things that are being created. So he continues to inspire and will do for a long time. So what's next for you now, B? What are you up to in the immediate future? Yeah, so working on promoting clemency. So people can go to Caramel Film Club and we've got a virtual screening room and they can go on there and click. It's cheap as chips now, it's like $4.99. And it would be wonderful to support the film. But what's really special about having a virtual screening room on our website is that we get a percentage of the proceeds so we can continue to do the work that we do. It's been a hard and tough time for um, a lot of organisations like myself. So yeah. I think, yeah, we're trying to move towards an economic stability again um so that's what working on at the moment and then there's a few other things that i've been asked to write poems for and what have you which i'll, I'll keep you posted people can follow me at bmunzini on instagram and facebook well thanks ever so much it's been lovely having you on the virtual show when we're back in the in the bfi you'll come back on again i hope and do the do the live show when everything's you know when all when all this is behind us and whatever the new normal looks like um has arrived it'd be lovely to have you back on the show so uh you'll thank come you back so much. i will absolutely thank okay. you mark 
My thanks to B Manzini and indeed our other guests this week, Rose Glass and Warwick Clark. Thanks so much for downloading this Kermit on Film podcast. If you've enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, tell your friends. As I said, if you'd like to see a video version, shorter versions of those interviews that you've just listened to, go to YouTube and either put in BFI or just search MK3D. And you can watch the whole most recent MK3D show online there. Tell your friends, if you have a moment, go and visit our Patreon page. There's loads and loads of exclusive stuff there including much more video content thanks ever so much stay safe keep watching the skies a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.